So the basic question that we're dealing with in these early weeks, these early two weeks especially, is do we have today what was written several thousand years ago? What level of confidence can we have that, that this is essentially what was originally written by all the human authors of the scriptures? That's what we mean by trustworthy. Can we trust our Bible today to be essentially the same as the originals? Now, I, I included on your, um, your sheet a quote by a man named Bart Ehrman. I don't know, Jeff, do you know the pronunciation of that? Is that good enough? Uh, he, he was an evangelical Christian who turned fundamental skeptic and uh, went to, uh, uh, I think, Moody and then, I don't know what graduate school, Princeton. Um, he wrote a book called Misquoting Jesus, and I, I, want, I think we've said we want you to hear from some of these people that are, you know, we don't want to build a straw man and say, well, this is you know, what somebody says, but here, there'll be some quotes from people like this. This is the only one I have today. But he says, it's one thing to say that the originals were inspired, but the reality is that we don't have the originals. So saying that they were inspired doesn't help me much unless I can reconstruct them. Not, <clears throat> not only do we not have the originals, we don't have the first copies of the originals. We don't even have copies of the copies of the originals or copies of the copies of the copies of the originals. What we have are copies made later, much later. How would you answer him? Today's question, are the Gospels reliable, is, is a subset or overlap uh, with the bigger question of last week. But because of the fundamentally crucial nature of this question, I, I want to do a little more review than, than uh, we, we will sometimes do anyway. But the answer to the question is... Uh, are the Gospels reliable? The answer to that question is yes. I'm going to tell you it is yes. We can be confident that the Bible is trustworthy, not just the Gospels, but we can be confident that the Bible is trustworthy because of a couple of important things. Um, so if somebody said to you, is the Bible really trustworthy? You can say yes, it is, and here's why. Number one, First, first area has to do with how the text was transmitted, especially in the case of the New Testament. That's most of our focus now. But throughout almost 2,000 years of, of history. And that's an important thing to study and consider because, as, we, as Ricky uh, reminded us last week, uh, the, the 27 New Testament books were hand-copied for more than 1,400 years. Bobby. Thinking of the word copy, when I read that paragraph, my my uh, thoughts about copy are fake. That's an, that's a modern oh. concept of the word copy, and so to say they're copied and copied and copied, it's like oh well they left the, the the what it was. But in fact, like what you're saying, they meticulously reproduced, which is different than a Absol fake copy. Absolutely. And so I, I use the word copy as in try to reproduce the exact. Yeah, but thinking of what they said in the paragraph, oh, yeah. copy is copy is copy is well. Yeah. Which presumes, uh, Ehrman's presumption, is that therefore there is no way that there can't be major errors introduced. And there were differences, variations, not necessarily errors. But yeah, hand copied for 1,400 plus years. That means people sat down with what they had on one hand and blank something or other on the other, and they, they copied because there was no other way to get them. And, uh, and so that's how all of those manuscripts, pieces of paper and scrolls and parchments and vellum and all that, that's how they reached the people who lived in um, the mid-15th century when the first movable type printing press was invented and the first Bible was printed by Gutenberg in 1454 or 1455. And so from then on, if you had a, a good typeset, you could, obviously every copy that came off of that machine would be the same, but that had not been the case up until that point. Everything prior to that time was hand copied. 
The assumption by skeptical scholars w is that there would be so many errors introduced into the process that we'd end up having nothing like the original. And the assumption by skeptical scholars, especially decades ago, was that the oldest copies we have would have been copied, I mean, the oldest ones we have in our possession would have been copied several hundred years after the original, and who knows what happened there. Now, the, the reality is that we have them much, much closer to the originals than that they are realizing. But the reality is that we have thousands of hand-copied Greek manuscripts of complete New Testament books and fragments, thousands. 5,500, I read something the other day, it said 5,800, and that's just the start. In addition to that, we have thousands in other languages. Uh, we have more than 20,000 copies of all or parts of New Testament books today, more than 20,000 copies. Um, and the oldest of these that we possess were copied within about, and there's some difference of opinion here as well, within about 70 years of the originals. That's basically a lifetime, one lifetime. And there is such a high degree of agreement among these thousands of them that scholars can be confident that we know what was originally written. There is a science to that, to that study. It's called textual criticism. Don't misunderstand the term because it has nothing to do with being critical of the text. Um, textual criticism is the science of looking at these New Testament manuscripts, determining why one variation occurred here and not here, and then you compare all of those and you can say, oh, well, we know what was originally written. And that, that's, a, that's a science that has given us high degree of confidence in, in what was originally written. One writer that I read said, when it comes to the manuscript authority of the New Testament, the abundance of material is almost embarrassing in contrast. Um, hang on. I think part of what we need to do for you in the course of this class is, is to build a resource list, and, and we will do that. And um, there, are, there are hundreds of good books and other materials online on this whole, this whole subject. And so one of the ones that, uh, that I have particularly liked is uh, this one by Norman Geisler and Frank Turek. And uh, one, of, one of the co comments that he made, and it's called, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. It's a good book. Geisler is amazing. He, he, he made this comment. Um, the New Testament documents have more manuscripts, listen carefully, more manuscripts, earlier manuscripts, and more abundantly supported manuscripts than the best 10 pieces of classical literature combined. And so if some scholar somewhere says, well, I, I have a pretty high degree of confidence that Caesar's Gallic Wars is, is a reasonably accurate um, representation of what Caesar originally wrote, uh, or Homer's Iliad and, and that type of thing, then they have to say, well, then the New Testament, given all of this, is, is very well attested. We know what was originally written. That's basically what it boils down to. There are only a few places in the whole New Testament text where we aren't quite sure, and they, they amount to nothing of any significance morally, theologically, and that type of thing. So uh, all of these books are going to be on my part of the list that we give you. And Jeff and Ricky will, I'm sure, add some. So um, what I've told you, the history of the text and the degree of confidence we have in it basically refutes the telephone game objection to the reliability of the scriptures, okay? So if, if, uh, if I would pick one of the rows here, and, and uh, I went to uh, Chevette over there, 
And I whispered a sentence in your ear, and you whispered a sentence, the same thing in Bobby's ear, and it went down the row. Maybe we take two rows, because we need a few more than just seven of you. The 10 or 12 people, and you know what happens. By the end, let's, let's say that uh, I whisper into Chevette's ear, the Gutenberg Bible was the first book printed on a press. Okay, and you're the only one that hears it. You, you pass that down. By the time we get to, let's say, Dan over here, it would come out, they glued Bert's bike to the first boots painted on a dress. <laughs> I mean, it, that's the way the game works, right? That seems like a reasonable objection. That, that's how the process of transmitting something to one person to another person, and then you multiply that by a couple thousand years, it makes some sense, doesn't it? However, think of this. That game is optimized for corruption. Because you have 5, 10, 12 people, you whisper it to one at a time, and so nobody else can hear, and you do it in, in, the, in a whisper, and so it doesn't always get past. You're, you're usually not allowed to repeat it in this game. Um, and so it, it's guaranteed to produce that kind of distorted, weird outcome, right? Okay. Think of this, though. What if I stood right here, and as I'm doing, and very loudly and clearly proclaimed the same sentence to everybody, the Gutenberg Bible was the first book printed on a press, and I, I, I was very clear, and it was very, how many of you would get it right? All of you. You know, and, and without getting into the incredible history of the, the scribal process, but as you mentioned earlier, Bobby, they were committed to accuracy. Because they're humans, it was never absolutely perfect, but... They had all kinds of safeguards. And then the guy who was, um, I'm, I'm maybe dressing this up a little bit, but the guy would go to each person and say, okay, what did you get? Oh, no, that's, that's wrong. Here it is. You know, and they checked and checked and checked. And in certain groups, uh, when they came, especially in the Old Testament, uh, they came to the name of God. They had a special little ceremony that they would uh, kind of go through and recognize before they even wrote it down. I mean, there was a, a high level of commitment. You couple that with their commitment to oral tr uh, transmission accuracy, and, and we don't have any idea how precise that process really was. Okay, so we have a text today of the Bible that we can be highly confident is essentially what was written. Okay, but there's another question, um, and, and it's a question of internal evidence, um, and, and that test simply asks, were these writers telling the truth? Because you can, I mean, and the ability to tell the truth about something or someone is, uh, is closely related to the, to the witnesses nearness both geographically and chronologically, chronologically to the events that they record. In other words, um, you know, I have, I have a pretty good idea of uh, the things that happened in, in uh, Sandy Moses' life for the last 30 years, right? Because I've been close to you, you know, we're contemporaries, and I could, I could write a few things. I won't, but I could. Now, if, if somebody in South America 100 years ago or 100 years from now were to write about you, they wouldn't get it right unless they had some, some witnesses. And so um, what's important here is, is to recognize that the New Testament, especially written accounts of Jesus, began to be circulated within a few decades or even years of the resurrection of Jesus. And that doesn't even include the, the archaeological discoveries that, that kind of helped confirm all of this. And so were they telling the truth? I mean, you can, you can write a lie and have it accurately transmitted for 1,400 years, but were they telling the truth? 
And so that, that's another important thing. And the important fact to recognize is that these were eyewitnesses. If somebody's got a Bible handy and can find Luke chapter 1, um, quick find it and then just read loud and clear the first three verses, Luke chapter 1, and just listen. Come on, this is like a sword drill. You can, you can do this. Read away. Some of you have it in front of you. I know you do. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Okay. This was Luke describing um, his commitment to reproducing the truth. And the key word there was eyewitnesses. Luke says, I got this stuff from eyewitnesses. Now, here's an important thing to think about. Uh, some of the eyewitnesses were hostile. They were not friendly to Jesus. And if Luke or Matthew or Mark or John had written garbage about Jesus, they would be called on the carpet immediately by hostile eyewitnesses. And so um, it's important to have eyewitnesses. It's important also to have hostile eyewitnesses because they provide a check on the truth. And Luke is just making a point that I recorded accurately uh, from, from those who were there um, the events of the life of Jesus in the case of his gospel. He also wrote Acts, which is really an ex almost an extension, although he calls um, his gospel a, a previous book. But uh, he, he, made a, he had a high commitment to the, especially the historical accuracy of everything. So what I'm just simply trying to establish is that we reliably have what was originally written in the New Testament and the Old Testament. But there's another question, is what they wrote, especially about Jesus, accurate and reliable? Now, we're considering the Gospels this Sunday as, a, as another week in kind of the reliability or trustworthiness part of, of this class for, for uh, several reasons. First of all, the Gospels are the, the record of the life and ministry of Jesus. He's the author and perfecter of our faith. If they're not telling the truth about Jesus, there's no reason to go on. Um, here's a second reason why we're studying the Gospels. There are four Gospels. Have you ever thought about why? Why are there four? How, how do they compare with each other? And how do we deal with the differences between them? That's a confusing thing to a lot of people. And there are those who, who would come to you and say, you know, the Gospels contradict each other. There's no way that we really know what happened in the life of Jesus reliably because they contradict each other. So why are we studying Gospels? They're the record of the life and ministry of Jesus. There are four of them, which raises all kinds of questions. The third reason, there is this special challenge of what we call the synoptic problem. I'll explain that. Um, and part of the synoptic problem is, has to do with explaining the significant similarities and dissimilarities between the synoptic Gospels. And so that leads to the common question, how can you believe the Bible and the Gospels when there are four stories of Jesus' life that have so many contradictions? Now, there are two types of Gospels in your Bible. The first of these is this synoptic Gospel thing. I'm going to Write that on the board. The synoptics are Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Pretty easy to remember. First three. And then... There's the Gospel of John. And so whenever we talk about the synoptic Gospels, we're talking about Matthew, Mark, or Luke, or all, all of them. Now, the synoptics are called that because of their similarities. Um, although there are uh, significant differences and similarities, far more similarities than differences. But here's, here's the significance of the word. S-Y-N, the first syllable, is, is a, um, 
reflection of the Greek term behind this, and it means um, with or together. And then guess what optics or optic has to do with? Seeing. And so the word synoptics basically says uh, seeing together. And so the three gospels sort of see together the life of Jesus. And it, it really reflects the, the, the similarity, the similar approach that Matthew, Mark, and Luke take to the life of Jesus. And then you get to the gospel of John, and he, it's just a whole different thing. Um, it's a different way of approaching. There are similarities between John and, and these. And I, I could give you a lot of um, statistics in terms of, uh, you know, the comparison and how many verses are similar and how many are dissimilar, and I'm not smart enough to remember all of that, and so we're, I'm just going to say that that's, that's the case. And so the synoptic gospels see together the life of Jesus. And so when you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it, it just feels, they feel sort of similar. You, you observe countless similarities. Uh, one of the art authors that I read said that, um, the similarities are the, the dominant picture, the places, the names, the crowds, the rural setting, busy Jerusalem. And, and you kind of get the same feel uh, to some degree with Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Now, let's look at some basic questions about the Gospels. Why are there four instead of just one? Couldn't somebody have written a biographical sketch or a biography of, of Jesus' life and ministry, and, and it would have been good. It would have been less confusing. Now, um, there are several reasons, I think, and, and I would love for Ricky and Jeff to, to weigh in here if you have additional insights, but several reasons why there are four Gospels instead of one. The Gospels were really not intended to be official biographies. Now, a, bio, biograph, uh, a biographer is going to uh, uh, kind of adhere to a science of covering all the bases, right? You don't want to leave any major part of some uh, famous person's life out if you're writing it. And, and so uh, you want to cover everything. But these aren't intended to be biographies. Each of these Gospels presents a unique viewpoint perhaps has a different audience or emphasizes a different theme, all right? And I'm, I'm going to give you a, a bit of an overview of that. Um, Matthew appears to be the most structured in some ways, and Matthew seems to emphasize that his writing is, is, the, is focused on Jesus as the Messiah, the, the son of David, is a term that appears frequently, and that was significant to what audience? Pardon? The Jewish people. And so, in a sense, I, I, I don't see this approach much in, in the more scholarly literature, so I don't know if, if they really believe this, but it just feels right to me. Um, this is the Gospel of the Messiah, and perhaps his uh, intended consciously or unconsciously audience was, or the Spirit's intent, was, was the, Jewish, the Jewish people. They would interact, uh, they would understand much of this material. Mark is different. It is the briefest gospel, and it almost seems as though um, the emphasis is more on the servanthood of Jesus, the suffering servant. Uh, in some ways, the language of Mark is the most dramatic um, th there's not a lot of extra material, and there are those who, who believe that maybe Mark's intended audience was the Roman world. The Romans, you know, they were kind of cut and dry. They had their servants. They valued obedience, and, uh, and, uh, and so Mark emphasized that. In fact, there's an interesting illustration of that uh, in two of the Gospels, I think it's Matthew says that the Holy Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness for the temptation. How does Mark put it? The Spirit drove Jesus into the wilderness for, for the temptation. It's almost like that's what you do to a servant. Luke um, 
appears to be the most thematic, uh, precise, historically detailed, uh, almost seems to present Jesus, here, here is the perfect man. What part of the audience, uh, the intended audience of Luke's world, would maybe most relate to that, do you think? Greek. I heard Greek. You're right. I, I think, anyway. The Greeks valued um, philosophy, intellectual abilities, and uh, perfection of the human experience in the human person. And so possibly that's part of the reason. I mean, there were these very diverse bodies of people within the Roman world, the Jews, the Romans, the Greeks. Um, and what about John? Well, John is the most theological of all of them. He presents Jesus as the divine Son of God who reveals the Father. And it, it's, it's almost as though John's approach is to just say to the whole world, here he is. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Um, can you think of one other verse in the Gospel of John that would emphasize that he was thinking of the whole world as his audience? Yeah. For God so loved the world, the Greeks and the Romans and the Jews, but the whole world. So that may be one reason why there are four Gospels instead of one. Jeff or Ricky, Observations that would add or challenge that? Or? I've heard it described as, um, you know, like if you'd paint four portraits of Winston Churchill, like one, he's a military general, one, he's the prime minister, one, he's, he loved to paint, and he loved to hunt. So if you paint him in each four of those, paint a portrait of him, according to each four of those aspects of his identity, you'll get four very different pictures that reveal four very important things about the same person. So, Okay, yeah, and for those of you watching on video or didn't hear all of that, uh, example is uh, somebody painting a portrait of Winston Churchill as a, what were the four, as a um, hunter, a painter, a world leader, or a national leader, um, whatever the other, military head. Um, Prime Minister, you're going to get four four different pictures, and and it's almost as though, uh, and this is sort of a no-brainer in a way that the life of Jesus is so much bigger than any one type of description can make it. So let's have more than one, and uh, so the Holy Spirit um, inspired four accounts of the life of Christ. Um, it may not matter much to you, but it really matters a lot to some scholars. And Which gospel was written first? Well, there, there are two major schools of thought, and they argue bitterly with each other, and sometimes in a friendly way. Um, I think the more traditional view is that Matthew was written first. Um, throughout the, the subsequent years, the... Um, Whenever there was a list of uh, the Gospels, Matthew's always listed first. He has some kind of priority there. Uh, and the idea is that when Matthew wrote it, um, uh, he, he had some background material. He had uh, perhaps some written stuff, some oral traditions that, that had begun to be written down, no doubt almost immediately after Jesus' resurrection. And uh, that Mark and Luke used Matthew as source material, which explains some similarities and doesn't explain the dissimilarities. There's another school of thought that almost seems to be growing, is that Mark was the first one. Um, and that Matthew and Luke were aware of Mark's gospel and expanded on it. And there are those who believe that John was written a little later, and so he if he was aware of these, um, these three Gospels already existent, he said, well, why, why do I need to cover the same material? And so he, he filled in many gaps and expanded and had, had a different, uh, different approach. And so given the four, then we have a much more complete picture of Jesus than we would have had otherwise.
All right, so any, any questions about any of that so far? Yes, Ricky. Does it matter who Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were as individuals? Um, well, yes. I'm sure you have something in mind behind the question. I, you know, Matthew was a confirmed Jewish person but a tax collector, so he's a despised part of the Jewish population in his professional career. Mark uh, was not a, an apostle, and uh, that bothers some, but it's pretty widely understood that Mark represented Peter's viewpoint. And so there's, there are two apostolic. Uh, Luke was not um, an apostle, uh, but very close, of course, to the apostle Paul, and, but was also a, an extremely careful historian. And so he apparently researched, and the, the level of detail in Luke's stuff is just astounding to to a history-obsessed type person today that he got it so right. Uh, and, and John, of course, was a conf confidant of Jesus, very close. Now, what else did you have in mind? So essentially, so essentially what you're saying is you have three apostle views, Matthew, Mark, and John, and then Luke. I've read that Luke should be considered one of the foremost first century historians there was. So that's all I was saying. I don't know that everybody knows that the Gospels are essentially first-hand apostle accounts except for Luke's. Right. The Gospels are first-hand apostolic eyewitness accounts except for Luke, who was one of the foremost uh, historians, should be considered, many believe, and I read that several times in several sources this week, historians of the first century on the on a par with, with others. So um, other questions or comments before we sort of get into another little realm here? Okay. Uh, why are there contradictions between the synoptics especially? Where one writer says one thing and another writer says another thing. I'll give you uh, an example. In Matthew chapter 20, verse 29, a couple of blind men approach Jesus and ask for healing. In Mark chapter 10, verse 46, in what appears to be the same incident, the same time frame, one blind man who is named <clears throat> Bartimaeus, approaches Jesus and asks for healing. Okay, well, we don't have any reliable record. They got it all wrong. Well, let me ask you, what's the difference? Is there a difference between contradictions and just differences? Um, which is this blind man? And, you know, and there are others like this. I could tell you a lot of stories or a lot of uh, examples. Um, is this a difference? Or is this a contradiction? Um, because you're mostly obedient Christians in here, you'll, you'll, there's probably no way you'll say this is a contradiction. But it, if you believe that, I'm glad you're here because I, I want us to talk about this. All right, let me, let me give you an example. Um, what if I, if I tell you that I went downtown and I met the mayor um, of Newton? I, don't even remember who that is right now. Anybody know? <laughs> but I met him. Um, and, then, and then I talked to Robert Palmer, who, who owns Back Alley Pizza. Okay? And then I, uh, later I, I ran across my son Jeff, and I told him that I, I, I met Robert Palmer. And I visited with him. Um, but then I, I told Marilyn that I saw Robert and... Uh, and the mayor. Now, you, you see where I'm going with this? I, it isn't necessary for somebody who gives an account to give all of the details unless it's intentionally um, misleading. But because of the context there, those, were, those are complementary accounts. I tell Jeff I saw Robert. I tell Marilyn I saw Robert and, and the mayor. Uh, that's not contradictory. 
unless I gave the impression that I had only, if I said, the only person I saw downtown today was the mayor or something like that. Um, but for reasons of context, it, it maybe isn't as important to include all of the details. Um, almost all of the gospel contradictions that people claim fall into a category like that, where for one reason or another, the description of an event differs simply because of some difference in the approach that the given writer took. Sometimes a contradiction is a difference in perspective. And I say, there's a window in my basement office. And I tell you that, and you have this picture of a window in my basement office, right? Actually, there are two. Um, but in the context of my statement, I was focused on the one for maybe reasons that were related to some conversation I was, I was having. Um, so, so maybe what I was thinking when I wrote that, there is a window in my basement office. I would, I would sort of be saying, there is one particular window in my basement office from which I can see the construction progress in my backyard. That's a key window. The other one doesn't count. It's there. Um, and so when I say there's a window in my basement office, am I lying to you? No. Unless I said there is only one window in my basement office, and there are two, then I would not be telling the truth. But uh, the statement, there's a window in my basement office, and there are two windows in my basement office, are not contradictory, if you understand more of the backstory. Most of what are claimed to be contradictions in the Gospels fall into that kind of category, Paul. Would the account of the thieves on the, on the cross ridiculing Jesus in one, it just, you know, that they you know, ridiculed him, and the other one, one of them, you know, repented, basically. Would that fall in that category? I, I believe it does. Uh, Paul's comment is about the two thieves on the cross, crosses, uh, Next to Jesus, one account says they both ridiculed him. One account says only one did, and the other one came to faith and was assured of his place in paradise with Jesus later. Now, in, in my view, that's an easy thing. Um, it's quite possible. I don't know that this is the answer, that when they were first crucified, both thieves railed on Jesus, and one of them had a come-to-Jesus meeting moment in his mind and said, wait a minute. You know, this, this, is, uh, this is somebody that I need to be paying attention to. And so he, you know, I, I don't have any problem with that. They did both. Both accounts are true, but taken from different time slices of the chronology of the crucifixion, that type of thing. I heard a crime investigator that actually kind of analyzed it, and they said that the fact that the Gospels are contradictory in those ways actually makes them more true. Because eyewitness accounts, people see things differently, and if they were just copying one another, it would make it less true than have them seeing things in a different way. Yeah, the uh, uh, comment she makes is that a crime investigator made the point that uh, the multiple accounts reinforce the truth because eyewitnesses would have different perspectives. Am I summarizing that yeah. accurately? So it really strengthens uh, the case for the trustworthiness rather than knocks it down. Megan? He didn't say contradictory. He said the fact that they expand on certain points that are important to them and then don't expand on others is simply their point of view. So like when you have four different people in a conversation, certain things are important to them versus certain things are important to others. So the fact that we have four is actually very, very helpful. Right. Con witnesses that differ unless they are not telling the truth deliberately um, or unconsciously, are not contradictory. They are complementary. That would be a good way to, to summarize that. Ricky? The thing that keeps going through my head is that word contradictory is a divisive word. I mean, it's used in a negative... A ne if you're going to use that word contradiction, you're not going to use it in a polite fashion. Right. You'd use the word corroborative or complementary. So the fact that people are using the word contradiction, they're using it to be to cause division or, or doubt. 
Ricky's making the point that the term contradictory is intentionally negative. I learned a new word, pejorative. Is that right? It's intended to, to be a, a negative thing. And, and yet, for many, that's exactly how they are using it. And many of the people who will object to the trustworthiness of the Bible will tell you exactly that. Uh, I, I can't because I, I have been told, they won't say that, but I believe that there are contradictions in the Bible or in, in the Gospels especially. Other comments or questions? Uh, more, Ricky? So in the apologetic sense, it's one, of those, it's one of those good terms, one of those good places to ask them to define what they mean by contradiction. So mm -hmm. ask, what do you mean by contradiction, or do you mean collaboration, or, or what, do you mean by, what do you mean by that? Yeah, uh, the good response, Ricky is reminding us, is to, is to ask what they mean by that when somebody approaches you with it. It's just a, a good tactic to, to answer the question with a question. It gives you time to think, and it, it forces them to think a little more deeply about their question. Um, Greg uh, Kokel um, has written several books that I think I've mentioned already in the class, but one of his things is... Uh, how, how did you, he encourages us to ask people who object, how did you come to that conclusion? Oh, well, let's see. And so they're forced to kind of think through the, the rationale for an off-the-cuff comment that many accept as true but haven't really thought it through. And so you're, you're buying time and you're making them clarify their own thinking and you can introduce what Coco calls a pebble in the shoe, just a little seed of doubt about what they're believing and they walk on that for a couple of weeks and it, it eventually becomes a little bigger and it, they pay attention or they shake the pebble out of the shoe and go on in willful ignorance, to use a biblical term. I may be getting ahead, but you said almost all contradictions in the Bible, you know, fall into that category. What are the other ones other than the almost all? Oh, I can't remember. <laughs> uh, he's asking what almost all the apparent contradictions are complementary, not contradictory. And I, you know, honestly, right now I can't think of some of the ones that have not been fully resolved. Um, Jeff, you got to possible one of the well one of the main ones is often the resurrection appearances and the differences in those accounts but I'll, I'm planning on talking about those next week okay <laughs> um, um, there are differences in the resurrection accounts who got to the tomb first who went you know did did they not go tell the disciples or did they uh, there are differences there, and you put all four together, and, and there are some things to resolve. And in the minds of some, those have not been adequately resolved. But Jeff will do that for you next week, <laughs> and uh, you will be fully confident in the flow of events surrounding the resurrection. And next week, I don't think we have classes, that correct? Because of oh yes, there's um, a, uh, next week is off. So next week. week is off. Do not come in here. There will be nothing for you. And uh, so the following Sunday. And of course, the resurrection is the cornerstone of our faith. And uh, we want to get that one right. We need to understand it. And because if it didn't happen, we got nothing. And Paul makes that point uh, more than one place, but especially in 1 Corinthians 15. But, uh, but yeah, that, that would be one, Paul, um, that would in the minds of some not have been fully resolved yet by, by scholars. <clears throat> um, I'm stalling a little here because I'm out of material. Uh, Kat. What is the difference actually between the letters from Paul and the Gospels? Very good question. Uh, I'm not sure at what point we'll address something. Her question is, what's the difference between Paul's letters? And I suppose you, we could lump in the letters of John and, and uh, others, uh, uh, but mostly Paul, of course, uh, between them and the Gospels. And so the, the short answer is that in terms of the level of inspiredness, inspiration, is the same. It's as much God's Word 
in what Paul wrote in Romans or anywhere else as it is in the Gospels. The Holy Spirit inspired them equally. There is a development of the, in, in Paul especially, and the Holy Spirit used Paul to develop the, um, the meaning in some way. I don't want to oversimplify this, but what did Jesus' life and resurrection and then Luke t- talking about the birth of the church, you know, what does that mean in terms of how we live and all the other stuff? So Paul develops the implications in some respects of the life of Jesus. And so there, there is, it all works together. God n- knew that we needed Paul's insights into the life and ministry of Jesus and what that meant to us for now and the future. And... Um, so I, I would say that's the difference. It, it's a different thrust. It's a different, um, it's a development of that truth. Does, does, that, does that help? Jeff? Yeah. I have one comment and one question. Um, comment is I'll actually address that somewhat at length in, in the resurrection one because Paul Jeff talks about the resurrection. That. Uh, question is, um, this is, sort of a, a different question on re- reliability of the Gospels, but it's, it's one a lot of skeptics bring up um, throughout the centuries, and, and that's how would you respond to somebody who, asks, who, who says, well, Jesus performs all kinds of miracles in the Gospels, and that's full of, full of superstition and ancient stuff that we no longer believe as modern people. Uh, so Jesus couldn't have done those things. So obviously the Gospels are not true because all these things are happening that we know it doesn't happen. Yeah, that, that's, that's, uh, that's a whole other element of the class that I could have and maybe should have gone into. Jeff's point is simply that uh, all of the miracles that Jesus performed um, in the minds of, of a naturalist or a skeptic, well, you know, that kind of stuff just doesn't happen, and so that de facto makes the Gospels totally unreliable because they report supernatural events. And, uh, and, and so that, that bias against all supernatural, of course, makes somebody conclude that this is untrustworthy stuff. Ricky? Uh, so I... When we get to the, the origins part, and we'll talk a little bit about science, I'll touch on that when we talk about science as well, about the difference between uh, that couldn't have never happened versus you know what we actually know and can know and do know. Does that make sense? Yeah. R- Ricky will deal with some of that when we talk about uh, origins and, and the place of science. Now, let me just kind of restate a little bit what what I think Jeff and I, I'm sure you would say too, Ricky. You know, one of the best, uh, I don't want to steal your thunder, Jeff, one of the best attested events in history in terms of historical reliability is the resurrection. Um, and I would simply say, if the resurrection happened, any miracle is possible. There, Katie, bar the door. Yeah, it, it's it's the others are nothing compared to that. Well, not nothing, but uh, uh, that's the most significant one, and that opens the door to all kinds of supernatural things that can happen. I would say, if, the, if God created the world, anything can happen. <laughs> God created the world; anything can happen. That's right. Yes. That uh, Frank Turek, who wrote that book you referred to, yeah. I've heard him say before. Uh, if you, if you ask an atheist if Christianity were true, would you be a Christian? And he'll comment that almost always an atheist will tell you no. Right. And, and that seems like it's more of a hard issue than an intellectual issue. And I was just going to ask you what you thought. Yeah. He's making the point that uh, one of the authors that I mentioned, Frank Turek, uh, wrote with um, Geisler in this one book. Asked, would ask atheists if, if Christianity were true, would you be a Christian? And the answer is no, because it's a heart thing, not just a head thing. And that, that it has to be part, I think um, that theme has to run as a sub-theme throughout this whole class, because some of this stuff is head stuff, some of this stuff is heart stuff. But you know what? There are some people 
for whom these are honest questions and they are the barriers to saving faith. One of my seminary professors uh, in our theology, one of our the early theology, my early theology classes, said every year we come to this point, we were about to talk about the uh, the evidences for the existence of God. You know, the basic. And he says, I'm tempted to skip this or or downplay it and say this is so. It's it's true, but it's theoretical. And he says every year somebody comes into my class and says, when I got those questions answered my heart was satisfied and I became a Christian. So there are some who have honest questions and some who have just that, that hardness of heart that no matter what the intellectual, no matter how many questions you can answer, no matter how much you can satisfy all of the contradictions and stuff, they're still not going to buy it because it's, the Lord hasn't opened their heart. But for some, the, there are honest barriers, and that's part of what I wanna help, we want to help you, equip you to to answer. Don't we have um, testimony of people in today's modern society of miracles that have happened, people that have been healed and babies end up in trees untouched in tornadoes and you know things like that testimony of events that would be considered only could be considered a miracle. She's making the point that, that there are miracles that still happen today. Um, if we believe in a God who can do the things that he did, he can still do them today. Um, there, there are um, some that are claimed to be that I don't think are, and there are some that, uh, that we in our uh, buttoned-down, tight, evangelical world find it a little hard to believe or, or to accept. But yes, God still works miracles today. I think God heals today. In my personal view, I don't think the gift of healing in the same way that it existed in the New Testament exists today, but God still heals today in answer to prayer, as he chooses. Question back here. I'm just going to make a comment. I think we don't look at miracles the same way. If there's a, you know, we don't see somebody walking up to someone on the street and they're missing a leg or something, like, you know, you're going to walk. walk. But when I was overseas, there were instances of, I never thought about miracles and visions and things like that. I didn't think that they happened today until I went overseas and met people in Muslim countries that would, you know, their lives are on the line. They know that if they accept Jesus as their savior, their family is going to disown them, their communities are going to disown them, their jobs are going to be gone, their lives are at risk, and yet they say, Jesus came to me in a vision and told me that I belong to him. And then they change their entire lives at the risk of their lives. And so sometimes we just don't hear about all the miracles that are happening around the world because we're so complacent in our communities that we don't see it here. But all around the world, there are many things happening that we don't know about. I'm going to try and summarize your statement for the sake of others. Uh, Shivet is saying that she has met people who have given testimony to miracles, especially, and visions in their own lives, and it, it was life-changing. Uh, I've been impressed over the last decade or two um, to read about, especially to Muslims, that their dreams and visions that have brought many to Christ, and there are too many of them too well attested to pass off as, uh, you know, heartburn from the falafel the night before or whatever. It, it's... Uh, you know, for some reason, in maybe even in different cultures or in different settings, maybe where there is more of the front, front lines of the gospel into a really resistant culture, God seems to be a little freer to, to do that. One of my seminary professors uh, of missiology and seminary was in Indonesia. Uh, this is decades ago, and, and uh, uh, there are claims, which I, I'm not sure that there were actually resurrections from the dead, in some of in some of that culture, um, which were frontline gospel, you know, I mean, it was head on the darkness and the forces of light, uh, much more so than in in our culture. Um, I, I I don't know if that's explains that all, but I think there's too much of that kind of thing for us to say in our official evangelical pomposity. No, that doesn't happen. Yes, it does. For us to claim that, uh, you know, that it happens all the time, I think we have to be discerning and careful. And, and 
You know what? All of us, all of us should be skeptics in the sense of examining every truth claim. We want our kids to be skeptics. What they're told in school, don't you want them to ask questions about that instead of just swallowing everything hook, line, and sinker? So uh, one of the books that Marilyn has discovered is just incredible. It's called Mama Bear Apologetics. And you don't have to be a mama to, to profit from that, but, but uh, the authors or author? Authors uh, are, do an amazing job of sorting through a lot of this stuff, particularly from the standpoint of mothers and kids, but, but it goes way beyond that. Uh, the, the author is... Ferrer. 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 She's actually the editor, but her name is on the book. I'll tell you. M A M A. B E A R. Hillary Morgan Ferrer. F E R R E R. General editor. It's amazing. Um, yeah, I, if you want to come up here and look at it afterwards, but if you, if you take it, you suffer the wrath of Marilyn. <laughs> okay, here. I'd like to just share one book. Whatever. You share a book. But it really made, it was really powerful for me. Uh, I dare to call him father. I dare to call him father. I dare to call him person, but it was a case. Islam, if I understand right, you would not call God father. Is that right, Jack? Who knows? You just wouldn't call him father. The God, the God they worship. So I dare to call him father. I dare to call him father. Book that Lynn recommends. Some David. The critic that says that there's. Bible's not true because there's just this plethora of miracles that, and we don't see this plethora today. Uh, about 600 miraculous events are recorded in the Bible, some one by one count. And over a 4,000 year history of the Bible, that's about one miracle every seven years that was significant enough to record. And, and so I would encourage them to keep that in mind, that there isn't a, a, a of a magic era, but that the Bible records a miraculous intervention by God about every seven years. Now, some of them were compressed, but that means that there was also decades where nothing was recorded. Now, maybe they were happening, but it wasn't recorded. So if we see a miracle every seven years now, it's about the same rate as that that's recorded in the Bible. And we, we it's arguable that we're seeing more than that yeah, more, more people are claiming more than one miracle in society every seven years. He's making the point that, uh, that the, the miracle rate, if there is such a, a thing, is probably just as active today as it, as it has been. I was going to make the point earlier, it flashed through my mind, that if you, if you study the whole Bible history, you know, after the creation, obviously that's a miracle, miracles of the highest order, but... There are, it seems to be that miracles are congregated, grouped in certain time periods much more richly than in others for reasons of whatever God is doing at the time. And, and following, um, following creation in the early Genesis, guess which one, which is the first miracle cluster, I'll call it that, that you would come across? Uh, I, I was thinking after that, but but yeah, but uh, the, the yeah the time of Moses. You you count the number of miracles that were that Moses got involved in of one sort or another, the recipient or the creator through God. You know there was a miracle cluster there. Um, there was another one um, in, in the ministries of Elijah and Elisha, in terms of a cluster. Um, Guess which the next major cluster was? The time of Jesus. 
and the time of the apostles in early Acts. And then it sort of faded out a little bit, or at least in terms of what is recorded. So. Weren't there more accounts in the book of John because it was related to you know, I don't know. Statistically, I can't answer. She's asking about whether there were more miracles recorded than John. I, I'm not sure. I haven't looked at it with that in mind, but it could be. Kim? So I think the Catholics accept seven books that we do not. Can you talk a little bit about why Protestants don't believe those and what the... Yeah, is this going to come up in any of the future? The uh, she's asking about the Catholics and the and the books that they add to what we call the canon or the collection. Uh, we call them the apocrypha. Um, they were not officially added to the uh, Roman Catholic thing until what council was it? It was in the fifteenth century, huh? Trent, Council of Trent. So they haven't always, but there is this collection of books, and some of them have historical value. Some of them are fanciful things that, uh, that but most of Christendom, I'll put it that way, have, have recognized that, that they are not on the same level as the inspired works. And we could get into um, a lot of detail about that, but... But there is, uh, there is a discrepancy there between the Catholic world and most of the Protestant world uh, on, on what books belong in the Bible. And so there's this, this cluster. I have the Apocrypha in my, in my office and uh, have read it three times, I think, in 30 years. And uh, So uh, it, it just does not rise to the level. It does not appear, and the church has has pretty much had a consensus, apart from the movement of the Catholic Church, that they are not a part of the collection. Jan? So do they contradict anything that's in the Bible? Um, do they contradict anything in the Bible, the Apocrypha? I don't know the answer to that. Do they embellish? They embellish incredibly and almost unbelievably. I know that, uh, like in the Gospel of Thomas, you know, Jesus will say, Jesus quoted and said, you know, I'm in the wood, I'm in the rocks, going to almost like a, a pantheistic theology, and then like somehow for a woman to get in the head and she has to put a hand. It's a weird Gospel of yeah. Thomas. He's talking about, the, talking about the Gospel of Thomas. Um, Which is not Apocrypha. No, the Catholic Church not. does not recognize that. There are non-canonical Gospels, and most of them were written probably 100 years or more after the, our biblical Gospels. But some of the stuff in, some of the, stuff in the Apocrypha and, and a lot of the stuff in these um, pseudo-Gospels are, weird is a good word. It's just fanciful and, and fairy taleish, and it just does not stand up to the internal evidence test of truth. What, was, what criteria was used when our Bible was um, What criteria was used? Well, this, the, the easy and simple answer is that the consensus of the believing world recognizing um, the quality of inspiration in a certain book. And it was a process. But a, a, a misconception is that some Christian council at some point, Council Nicaea or whatever, conferred inspiration status on the books that we have. That's not true. The books that are in our Bible were, were recognized. Their quality was recognized and affirmed it was the Holy Spirit who gave us the collection of books that make up our Bible. Uh, and people argued about that, fought about that. We had councils about it. But in the end, uh, we believe that it was, it was uh, finally recognized that these are the books that pass the test of insp inspiration by the Holy Spirit. God breathed these books, did not breathe other books. 
although they can be helpful historically and in other ways. But. And, and I have read that, whether it was official or unofficial, that one of the criteria that the choosers levied upon themselves was that if we're going to canonize it or put it into the, what we know, that we're so sure of its historicity and that we're so convinced of its spirituality that we're, we would die for it. Mm -hmm. So that's a pretty high standard, uh, and that's why some books didn't make it in. They just, they weren't ready to die for it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and there were a few that were, uh, that appeared to teeter on the edge in terms of books that were acceptable. There was a big problem with James that some had because of its um, apparent contradiction with some of Paul's speaking about grace and so on. But, but he's making the point that uh, what books would you die for? And if, if you would die for the scriptures, probably in evidence of inspiration. Okay, I'm going to read this quote at the end. I want us to read through it. You follow. I'm going to read it just as a summary, and then we have to go. There are two big problems. This is from the book When Skeptics Ask, a handbook for Christian evidences by Geisler and Brooks. There are two big problems that face anyone trying to put the Gospels together into a single story. The similarities in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and the differences in John. Some early critics thought, I think it should say, that John was making up his own life of Christ, but careful study has shown that the different events men mentioned in John really hold the keys to the chronological order of the other Gospels. Also, John sometimes adds details that make sense of puzzling things. While these synoptic Gospels often record the same events, they do it in a different order and often with some real differences. In some cases, we find that Jesus used the same phrase or parable on more than one occasion, and this has caused confusion. Luke tends to organize events by subject, while Mark puts all the parables in one place and all the miracles, etc. It's just kind of helping give you a picture of, of the richness that comes in the plurality of the Gospel accounts of Jesus. We, we can be really highly confident that Jesus lived, existed, did what is said, taught what we uh, find recorded in the Gospels. And so may God give you confidence in your Bible, especially in the Gospels. I'm going to pray. Father, thank you for the truths of your word. It's precious to us. Um, it's a miracle that it has been transmitted in such a, a complete way through the 1,400-some years of, <clears throat> of copying history. Um, thank you for preserving it. Thank you for the thousands of pieces of the Scripture that people, um, with, with great attention and great reverence, um, have kept and collected and copied and passed along knowing uh, the, the crucial nature of what they were doing and thank you for superintending that process uh, as we believe you did um, you uh, the Holy Spirit caused them to be inspired as written and then superintended uh, at least the process of them coming to us and thank you that we have your word to us today May we not see it as an academic piece of our lives or as a curiosity to be studied in this way, but as your living word that is able to pierce the in innermost parts of our being and help us discern truth and life and how to apply truth to life. And so build our confidence, equip us to speak with those as you give us opportunity who are curious, confused, indifferent, wake them up to your truth, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.